The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. Just wanted to take another look at you edition. It's Wednesday, October 10th, 2018. On today's show, A Star is Born is one of those movies, maybe the only movie of its kind, really, that is destined to be remade for each generation. I think this is the fourth iteration uh, of the film. This one is a hammy and glammy two-hander. It stars Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper. And then the director of the 1994 documentary Hoop Dreams is back. He has a new one. It's a 10-part docu-series. It's on stars. uh, And it focuses on an uh, integrated high school on the outskirts of Chicago. Uh, It's called America to Me, and it's amazing. I will not poker face this one. I love it. And finally, how do we talk about art in an age of supercharged morality. We are joined by uh, a critic we love, Wesley Morris, very close friend of the program. He's a Vic Fop uh, and uh, the amazing Pulitzer Prize winning critic for the New York Times Magazine. Joining me today is uh, Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Julia. Hello. Big news. Big news. Uh, Huge, huge news, huge news. My ontology is quivering at the borders. Like my world is no longer my world. I'm very sorry to make your ontology quiver as always. Uh, I what you were alluding to is that I announced last week that I have taken a new job at the Los Angeles Times running their entertainment industry and arts and culture coverage. And that means I won't be the editor in chief of Slate anymore in a few short weeks. But as part of this move, I have brokered a deal to remain on the Culture Gab Fest. So our decade long conversation continues (laughs) into its second decade. Thank God. Um, so I won't. I, you will still hear me in your earbuds. I will just have a different title that it will no doubt take Steve some set of time to remember. That's <laughs> so true. And you can look forward to me uh, knowing a lot about arts and culture, as opposed to um, having researching and and watching arts and culture being a sideline to my main job. It will be my actual job. So get psyched. I- This is just, I mean, this is not acceptable to me. I was not consulted. No no one took my ontology and its fragile axis into consideration on this. Um, But on the other hand, you're no longer my boss lady, huh? Oh, yeah. The power dynamics are going (laughs) to shift. The insouciance. (laughs) Subtly shifting. I love it. I think that will that means we will continue in what has become the actual state, which is that Ben Frisch is all of our bosses. So oh, that's that, that's that's a, that's a good world order. That is the GD truth right there. And of course, Dana Stevens is Slate's film critic. Dana, I have long since mastered your job title. <laughs> I'm, I'm honored. I'm also considering re-entering counseling at the thought of Julia not being in New York anymore. But as long as she's still on the show, I will cling to a shred of sanity. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh, it's so true. Um, all right. Well, we have to dig right in here because uh, the first Star is Born, uh, I forgot there was one prior to the Judy Garland, James Mason one. There was a 1937 version, a 1954 version, which is the Judy right. Garland one, the 1976 right. Chris Christopherson. And uh, and then there was also a, a movie, a George Cukor film called What Price Hollywood? It was, I believe, 1932 um, mm. that was a very similar structure. And then Cukor eventually became the director of the Judy Garland version. Sorry for all that background, but that's that's the long Hollywood history of a star. That is good cinema history. I mean, we're coming up uh, 
on uh, almost a century of making and remaking this movie. Uh, it's a movie destined to be remade to fit the times. Uh, so we've had Judy, uh, we've had Janet Gaynor, Judy Garland, Barbara Streisand. Those are some very big shoes to fill, which is maybe why the project to remake this movie again, um, this time to fit the age of the pop diva, took really kind of a mini forever to hit the screen. Uh, it was Bradley Cooper as director, co-writer, and star who brought the project to fruition. He plays Jackson Maine, a grizzled, lot of tread on these tires, booze and pills, veteran of the rock and roll circuit of the road. Uh, who discovers by pure serendipity Allie, a young and struggling chanteuse, uh, by giving her his love and bringing up her competence, uh, he turns her into a mega pop star, quite like Lady Gaga, who uh, plays the part. Why don't we listen to a clip? Can I ask you a personal question? Do you write songs or anything? I don't sing my own songs. Why? I just, I just don't feel comfortable. Why wouldn't you feel comfortable? Well, because, like... Almost every single person that I've come in contact with in the music industry has told me that my nose is too big and that I won't make it. Your nose is beautiful. Are you showing me your nose right now? Yeah. You don't have to show it to me. I've been looking at it all night. Oh, come on. Oh, I'm you gonna be thinking about your nose for a very you're long full of time. Shit. I'm not full of shit. Yeah, I'm you telling are. you the truth. Yeah, you're full of Can shit. Can I touch your nose? Oh my gosh. Let me just touch <laughs> it for a second. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, not really. That My nose has not made me lucky. Love the smoke and Almond Brothers <laughs> in the background there. Dana, I am as curious to hear what you think of this movie as I've ever been uh, <laughs> to hear anything exit your mouth. I... I <laughs> I just can't wait to hear what you thought. Did you like this movie? Did I you can't not wait like to talk it? about it. I can't wait to talk about it. Um, but I, I, but, but I'm not sure that I'm extremely objective about it because I should give the background that, as I said in my review of this movie for Slate, the 1954 version with Judy Garland and James Mason, directed by George Cukor, is probably in my top 10 movies of all time if I had to make a list, if some weird criminal was forcing me to make a top 10 of all time <laughs> list. Uh, I'm pretty sure that movie would be on it with and partly because of all of its imperfections. Um, and so I went into this, you know, not I, I try always to go into a movie wanting to like it. And I'd heard the rapturous advance notice about this ever since, I mean, all year since whatever festival it debuted at, Cannes, I think. Um, and so it had a high degree of difficulty for me, and it more than cleared it. I love this movie. I've been listening to the soundtrack ever since the soundtrack really? dropped the same day as the movie. I think it stands up to the 1954 version. It wouldn't replace it on my Ooh. Desert Island list, but um, but I thought it was it, it, it is a very hard thing to do to pull off a musical in 2018. Very different than writing a musical in 1954 when you've got Judy Garland, right? Um, oh, and it's also Bradley Cooper's directorial debut. He hasn't made a commercial. He hasn't made a short movie. He hasn't made a TV episode. He's never directed before, I think. Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't find any previous director credits for him. And uh, and he's made a, I think, stunning movie. I mean, it, this is an old-fashioned movie. I will say that. It's, it's kind of square. And I can already see on the internet that there's sort of two teams about it. There are people like me who are really excited and rapturous about it and in love with the soundtrack and 
I'm seeing it for a third time tonight because I want my daughter to see it because she loves Lady Gaga and it's a little adult for her probably, but I think she will really love this movie. Um, and then there are the people who, maybe you guys are among them, there are people who find it kind of basic. But if it is basic to love this movie, then I will embrace my basicness because I think it's a sensational success. The most surprising thing about it, besides the fact that Bradley Cooper can direct a movie, is that Lady Gaga can act. I mean, she can really mm-hmm. act. It's not just that she is a great singer and dancer and pop star who can deliver some lines sort of convincingly. She creates a really beautifully rounded and believable character, I found, and I would like to see her act in movies without any singing. Um, mm-hmm. I would like to see what she does next. I'm not a watcher of American Horror Story, so I know there are people that already know her acting from television, but from what I know of American Horror Story, I can't imagine that her performance is sort of as um, as naked as this performance is. And mm-hmm. we can talk about that. Like this movie in some ways is about what it is to be naked and makeupless and sort of transparent versus, you know, being more masked and artificial in the way that her character's performances become. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think in all parts of this movie, she is sensational in the singing, dancing, crazy makeup, you know, sort of Gaga-esque scenes. And in the early scenes when she's more of a sort of um, folky presence and singing acoustic ballads, maybe more of like a Nico Case type pop star, although the music that she sings is more like Elton John. I mean, that's another thing is that you really have to like, you know, corny acoustic piano ballads. And uh, and I love corny acoustic piano ballads. So a lot of this music just knocked me out. And I'm literally learning the words so that I can do them in karaoke in the near future. Oh, man. Steve, I've never, first of all, I'll tell you what I think if that's what you're about to ask, but I've never heard you make these like keening under sea whale sounds while Dana talks before so I'm looking forward to getting around to your view uh, yeah, I just hit the cough button on the mic when I keen like a whale but but I just yeah no I'm my head's spinning okay uh, but Julia um, hit me what do you what, what do you think okay three levels of response number one plop yourself in a seat watch the movie cry uh, be overwhelmed by the kind of joy of her rise particularly the first sort of 45 minutes of the film where she's a nobody and he's a drunk and they meet each other and they have creative kismet and then he propels her to stardom and the star is actually born. Like, what an amazing sequence. Just great uh, kind of cheeseball, compelling wish fulfillment drama, but really artfully rendered, I think, kind of beautiful. The way the film's sound design works is very effective. I think like the you kind of pop in and out of Jackson Maine's head. You feel like you're performing to an arena of gajillions of people in a way that I haven't really seen captured in, in a fictional drama before. I really enjoyed that. I think it's worth seeing for those first 45 minutes alone. As the movie unspools, the performances in it throughout are incredible and you're captured and carried along by them. Um, and and I think it's worth seeing. The movie is a melodrama. The plot is a melodrama. Oh, it's absolutely a melodrama. So you have to be someone who likes musicals and likes melodrama. Well, so just what do we do with melodrama in 2018 is something I'd like to circle back around right. to well, with you the- guys. Like, I'm not sure I'm wired to process melodrama. And I don't want to spoil too much about the particulars at the end of the movie, but... If you're familiar with the Star is Born story, you know it's not like Cupcakes and Roses at the end. There is a tragic incident at the end. Um, and I think you could argue about whether that, where the, whether the movie lends any glamour to that tragic incident in a way that might be troubling. Um, but anyway, I want to talk to you guys about what to make of the tragic melodrama. And then the third level is, I think this movie is rockist. 
Like, this movie doesn't believe in pop music. And it's weird because Lady Gaga is one of the most... I mean, you could argue, I think... I'm not sure it would be correct, but it would certainly the materials are there to argue that Gaga is um, the premier auteur of pop, right? Mm-hmm. Like the argument we had about Taylor Swift. Is she really the architect of her sound? Is she just a puppet? This, that, and the other. The arguments we've had about Beyonce, you know, less so, I think, over the years as her music and approach have evolved. But, you know, is she a, a kind of pop cadet robot or to what degree is she having something to say about the world, as Jackson Maine suggests in the script of this movie, um, you'd never have about Gaga because her pop persona was so weird and so clearly constructed from a single crazy brain that you could see how someone would have something to say through artifice and through pop. In this movie, we are encouraged to see Allie's work as... um, you know, authentic and delightful and wonderful when she's being an earthy folk chanteuse. And then when she begins to dye her hair and uh, wear clothes and have backup dancers and there's more sequins and there's more lace. And she has a song (laughs) about like how your ass looks in that jeans um, that seems more Fergie than Gaga. Like it basically the song she sings on SNL is kind of seems like my humps, which is not, I think a song, a pop song we would put in the same camp as Gaga's Oof. Like, what what is Gaga doing in this movie that doesn't respect pop music? Like, it's right. weird. I don't think the movie posits that her evolution from a Carole King type folk singer songwriter to a pop star is is a degradation or a sellout of her talent. Even if that particular song is not the best song in the soundtrack and seems to have been written to be not the best song on the soundtrack. Interestingly, one of the co-writers of that song, and I believe only that song, is Diane Warren, who is just one of the pop-generating machines of Hollywood. She wrote Celine Dion's song for Titanic. You know, she is the person who writes cheesy pop. The movie is ambivalent. The movie recognizes that what Jackson is doing about her growth is lame and that she's a woman, a self-possessed woman who's managing her own career and that that's her prerogative and and she's not a puppet. But that song sucks and it's supposed to Mm -hmm. suck and the movie would be much stronger if it didn't. Right. Yeah. But Steve, we're getting into the fine details of the reception of the butt song, and we haven't, mm-hmm. e- we haven't even asked you, what was your response to the movie? I, I suspect that it was not as positive as mine. Are you going to tear down my, are you going to rain on no. my Star is Born Parade? No, uh, but here's what I would say. Well, first of all, I'm very interested in the question of like what role melodrama plays uh, in um, 2018 and what role it could play in the lives and inner lives of moviegoers, uh, probably pretty limited. I mean, it, it has the virtue of being uh, unique in that regard. It's the f- f- first like kind of A-listy melodrama um, that I can think of in quite a while. But it's interesting that many people people perceive it as camp or need to take it as camp, that that degree of seriousness uh, or self-seriousness uh, or heightened drama is just so completely outside of the ordinary experience of moviegoers now, especially younger ones, that they'll turn it into memes and campy memes and whatever, which this movie is just designed to um, have happen. But um, I, um, I, 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 here's where I come out on the movie, which is the Gaga is a revelation in it. And with her at the heart of it, it can scarcely be anything but a great time at the at the movies. She's the perfect person for the role in that she is, without makeup, she is so plausibly ordinary looking. She doesn't have to be 
you know, she's not an extraordinary classical beauty who needs to be frumped up in the early scenes uh, in order to have, you know, her burst the chrysalis of, you know, anonymity and, you know, in order to become this, you know, whatever, huge, charismatic, beautiful star, um, you know, and yet she's also, I mean, she's Lady fucking Gaga, right? She's also one of the most, if not most, charismatic, dynamic stage performers, vocal performers alive and in a long time. And so she's perfect for the film. Watching her go from this completely believable, I think, outer borough living, you know, deeply self-doubting, anonymous, you know, aspirant to essentially Lady Gaga, like works completely. Her face, you, you can't stop looking at her face. Her line readings are perfect. She's very natural in the movie. She never appears to be acting. Uh, she's she's amazing, right? Um, I thought that the early part of the movie, just as Julia did, the first quarter to a third was marvelous and, and was almost a screenwriting masterclass. I mean, it, it was so economical. I'll just, the detail that I, if I were ever teaching a screenwriting class, the detail that I would give people is, is Cheetos, right? There's this, uh, to my mind, by far and away, the best sequence of the movie is, is the two of them meeting. I won't give it away, but she gives an amazing performance. And then they go off together on their cute meet and he has to go into a supermarket and buy a bunch of items. I won't give anything away other than he buys a bag of Cheetos and she's made curious by the bag of Cheetos and he doesn't really explain why he's bought the bag of Cheetos. They then have an encounter a very intimate encounter in a parking lot. And then you just get this quick shot of his limo driver eating the bag of Cheetos. And that that just tells you so much about him and his relationship to this guy. And he knows what the guy likes to eat and he doesn't forget him and he buys it. It's just, it's just great, great screenwriting. And that 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 show don't tell uh, style that I think Cooper really is in in uh, in control of as a director, which is very impressive, um, begins to uh, begins to peter out into a somewhat underwritten movie, beginning about a third to halfway through it. And I'll tell you my biggest problem with the movie. Right, is I do think it has this set of rockist, unexamined rockist assumptions. So it misses its chance to do something really poignant about the end of an era and the beginning of a new one. Uh, and that his sense is that he is becoming obsolete and that's kind of his tragedy. Um, and and what would have helped that is if, I think it is always really hard to take an actor who is not, I mean, the truth is being a rock musician turns out to be a pretty fucking hard thing to pull off. And it's almost never do actors who don't have a serious and deep background as rock and roll performers really, really make you believe that they're rock and rollers. And oddly enough, like among my biggest problems with the movies is I find his songs preposterous and boring. Um, and I don't find him believable as a rock and roll performer. And so this kind of initial cathex, you, you, you cathect with her right at the beginning of the movie and you f will follow her anywhere. And I couldn't do that with him. I liked him early on. He's sexy and he's grizzled and he's got this kind of mumbly style that that really works and plays across from her quite well when the writing of the movie was strong. But there just came a moment where I knew exactly what the rest, he's popping pills and he's drinking gin from the bottle. You know exactly, exactly how that story is going to play out. And so it was unsurprised, you know, it was fresh and, and definitely done early on. And then it became just to me, very unsurprising. And in the end, I didn't really bond with his performance. I know that's probably heresy, but that's, that's, 
you know, well, that's where I, it came doesn't from. that come back to the to the melodrama question though? And I'm interested for Dana's perspective on this. Like, yeah, you know what's going to happen in a melodrama? People don't get what they want, and people die, and people cry. And like, what is the point of watching that? I'm not asking that from a point of skepticism, but like, what in the history of art? <laughs> Why do we do that? Why have we done it less lately? What does it mean to have it? Happen but what's now? the point of watching? What's the point of reading a myth? What's the point of watching a tragedy mm-hmm. when you know it's going to be right. tragic at the end? I mean, right. you you don't remake A Star Is Born in 2018 because you want to have a fresh, original, never before told story. You you do it because you want to take a myth. You want to take a myth and and tell it in a new way. Yeah, I mean, fre- you want to tell it freshly, which it did so beautifully at first, and then I thought it became. Uh, I I cried four times when I saw this movie. I cried through the entire credits. And it wasn't just about the story and the characters and reacting to the tragic events. It was a kind of appreciation of uh, just the generosity of this movie's artistry. You know, I feel like it's, it's, as I said, such a high degree of difficulty and it really just leaps off the deep end as the, you know, hit song, the hit single Shallow, the main song that they kind of fall in love singing together. I think the one weakness that struck me on first viewing, and which will probably become clearer as I see it more, is that the manager character, this this guy, uh, who this English manager who takes her and sort of helps mold her from the folk singer persona into the pop star persona, is a bit of an overdrawn villain. And uh, there's a couple scenes where he his villainy is, is a little bit too obviously framed, and I don't think it needs to be. I don't think this movie needs a villain necessarily because addiction is kind of the villain. All right. Well, I, I just want to be totally clear. People should see this movie for if, for nothing else. Gaga's a revelation in it, but it's 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 a it's a, it's a good night at the movies. All right. Um, Star is born and reborn. Uh, moving on. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where uh, we have probably some business to deal with. Julia, what do you have? We do. So today we have such a treat for listeners. Wesley Morris is back on the show after too long away to talk about his fascinating essay for. The New York Times Magazine about criticism, and uh, it was too fun to talk to him. Ben Frisch started giving us the helicopters, and we just like plowed on through because we couldn't bear to stop talking to Wesley. We could have talked to him for like three more hours, I think. We're going to take a chunk of that fascinating conversation for Slate Plus, so uh, non-plus listeners will hear the bulk of it as a segment, and then plus listeners will get some extras. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support us. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, onward. The 1994 documentary Hoop Dreams followed the story of two black Chicago high school boys who transfer out of their school, essentially in the ghetto, to a white suburban, quite fancy high school. Um, That movie was regarded as nothing short of a masterpiece. Um, uh, I agree with that assessment. One of its directors, Steve James, is returning now to similar territory, same set of questions involving race, class, identity, and America. His new series on stars is a 10-parter. He spends a year following students, teachers, administrators at the Oak Park and River Forest High School, as I said, on the outskirts of Chicago. And uh, this is a very specific area not only of Chicago, but the country in which as large numbers of black 
uh, residents moved into the neighborhood, there was a conscious attempt on the part of municipal authorities to stop white flight, to create a kind of model and integrated community. Uh, the documentary checks in with where we're at in 2018 in such a community. It's called America to Me. It is astonishingly good. Let's listen to a clip. My first year at Oak Park, I had a student who was really troubled and very violent in class. I did the best that I could, but I stayed somewhat emotionally disengaged. His dad contacted me this year to say that he had been killed from gang violence. Maybe I didn't do enough to support him and the school could have done more to help him so that he didn't have this fate. And I just feel really awful and I don't want to carry that with me. So when I have a kid like Keyshawn, who sometimes he's not at all like this kid, I've not seen any violent tendencies, but I don't want to get a phone call from, you know, his mom saying that this happened to him. And I can't do that with another kid because it's hard enough with this one. Julia, uh, I hope I will be forgiving, forgiven for having regarded this going in as eating my vegetables within two seconds of it. Basically, I was riveted. I planned to watch two, two and a half hours of it. I planned to watch every bit of it. It is, uh, to my mind, just completely heartbreaking. I got to put my heart is just right out on my sleeve on this one. I loved it. Uh, please tell me you felt the same way. <laughs> no leading questions on this podcast. <laughs> Consensus, please. <laughs> Um, I, no, I'm not, I'm not setting it up for a critique. I liked this a lot. I mean, I do not think it is vegetables. It's not shredded wheat. It is about a very serious topic. And it also, as a documentary resists, um, focused narratives of the sort that make such a heartbreaking story of systemic failure more intriguing and palatable. Like it really is this group portrait, this portrait of an institution. It reminded me actually of the documentaries of Frederick Wiseman that we've seen yeah, on this yeah. show that are just kind of embedded in an institution, pointing of a curious uh, and and fairly dispassionate lens at various aspects of the institution, but it, with a kind of shift in focus and a um, like a swarm like approach like you just keep you keep getting different angles you keep meeting different people you're not buoyed along um on any one story and i think that is probably the correct approach for trying to understand the systemic disadvantage that students of color face in this school and also just the challenges of education generally i mean in any encounter with educators i just come away completely distressed and radicalized about how crappily we invest in these incredibly important institutions and how poorly we support teachers who are the most important figures in our society. We should just all quit and become teachers. We should all quit and spend all our time raising money for teachers. Like it just, it, 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 it is true. And, and every day that I don't do that is a failure and sorry, everybody. <laughs> like I just, being embedded in the troubles of an, of an academic institution for young people is really heartbreaking and fascinating. But the approach is, um, I mean, it's been a long time since I've been seeing Hoop Dreams, but Hoop Dreams is like, has the arc of a, of a sports narrative luring you along as you explore these questions of race and class. And this is just like a, 
big goulash of trouble. Mm. <laughs> Am I wrong with the Wiseman analogy, Dana? I mean, an important difference from Wiseman, in terms of being embedded in an institution, yes, absolutely. I think Steve James's interests are similar to Wiseman's interests in terms of he doesn't just want to tell individual stories. He wants to look at you know the function of the institution and, and many times the non-functioning of this particular institution. But unlike Wiseman, there are talking heads. There are a lot of talking heads. And to me, that's a flaw of this documentary. Not the fact that he uses that occasionally, but I think he depends on sitting people down and interviewing them a little too heavily. I mean, Wiseman has that magical thing of you know being being this strangely invisible hovering presence who manages to observe everything without manifesting his own um, kind of identity in the room. And Steve James doesn't do that. In fact, people often acknowledge the camera, which is fine. Um, But I I sensed a very strong division in terms of the interest to me between free-floating camera that just watches kids behaving in the school and watches teachers behaving with the students and moments when, you know, you plonk down, especially with the adult educators, and interview them about something. And those moments I did sometimes find a little um, jargony and a little bit uh, familiar, the things that the teachers said. Um, That little clip of an interview we heard is an exception because that story is so heartbreaking that the teacher tells. But there are many other stories that felt familiar and felt like something I had maybe heard in, you know, PBS documentaries about education. The things that seemed fresher and newer were um, were moments of just watching the kids do their thing. The football stuff is all fascinating. There's a, yeah. in one of the early episodes, I believe it might be the first episode, there's this division established between the drill team and the cheerleaders at this school. And uh, very different from the hierarchy of, of cheering at other schools I've heard of, where I think of cheerleaders as being at the top of the, you know, the cheer ladder, the sports, you know, support ladder. But at this particular school, the cheerleaders are mainly black and they perform in a sort of less central part of the the football field for a part of the stadium that has, I guess, become sort of where the, you know, burnouts hang out or something like that. And uh, and the drill team is mainly, they're called the drill team, right? I think that's right. The drill team is mainly white and performs right at the 50 yard line at halftime and is, you know, what everybody is looking at and cheering for. And the division is so, so stark. Mm -hmm. I think choosing this school, this Oak Park school was a was a great move on his part because because of what an unusual status it occupies in, you know, in terms Mm of integration in high school. It's not an inner city school. It's a suburban school. It's 57 percent white. It has a 94 percent graduation rate. So it's in general a well-regarded suburban school. Right. Um, But within that success story, you know, you see that there's these these vast segregation problems and and, uh, a lot of kids that are really struggling. And uh, in what appears to be this diverse, integrated uh, lunchroom, for example, where at many tables, white and black kids are sitting together and interacting. Um, there's also all kinds of undercurrents of hostility and alienation. So the way that the show picks those out, I've seen four episodes so far, is is really fascinating. But this show requires a lot of investment. It's not Hoop Dreams, as Julia said, mm-hmm. that's sort no. of shaped no, no, by no. just two kids. I think, right, Hoop Dreams follows, I think, just two kids and their families. And is, as Julia said, shaped by the sports narrative and seeing if they're going to make it in basketball. This is much more diffuse and has a lot of characters to keep track of. Mm -hmm. I mean, it'll take you a few episodes just to get to even know all the kids we're following. I think there's so far probably six or seven kids and probably four teachers and the parents also at home that are being followed. And it's almost like I could have used a little bit more uh, labeling of people's names popping up and keeping track of who is related to who and what year they're in. Because, yeah, it's, it's, it requires a lot of, of focus to even even get into this documentary. But all that right. said, I do recommend it highly. No, give give us the pan, Steve. <sighs> the pan. Um, so t- 
there's so many reasons I find this gripping. I mean, I didn't know about this community. Um, the school and the community are, are, are or were and are ongoing essentially social experiments um, in, you know, in integration. It points up the immense and almost universal failure of the of, of American suburbia in the post-war decades when um, the, you know the presence of, of black people in inner cities sent white people out to the suburbs when a black middle class began to move into the suburbs it sent white people fleeing someplace else to different suburbs this is this you know a bit of a unicorn where totally consciously there was an attempt to maintain as much of an integrated community as possible and just the simple question of like to what extent did it succeed is itself interesting, but it also makes all of the failures that much more heartbreaking, right? That to have this much going for a community in a school and to still have kids falling through the crack based on their identity and principally their racial identity is 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 a kind of tragedy. And because it's because it's the whole thing was undertaken as a conscious experiment. It has attracted to it administrators and teachers who are supremely conscious of the nature of race and racism and identity. Um, and and um, and they speak well to it, which is why I'm grateful for the on-camera interviews. Uh, I want to hear more from those people because they're thought, really thoughtful pe- people who've um, uh, experienced it, you know, kind of close up. Um, and then the other thing is that... Um, um, you know, public schools are such equivocal institutions. They're they're excruciating institutions in their own way because they're tasked with an impossible task, which is equalizing life chances. Um, and when they don't, they get blamed um, for the most massive social problems in the country, right? Like for essentially for poverty and racism, because they somehow aren't able to take this legacy of a child who's already, you know, been raised by parents in a specific community and turning them into a life success. But public schools, therefore, are the locus of these like deeply American philosophical conundra, like these real problems about like when does someone's fate harden and in relation to what? Is it in relation to their innate ability, in 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 relation to their received identity, in relation to their IQ? And the fact that this is an institution in which these things kind of have to be um, thought through consciously on an ongoing basis with, you know, really painful real world effects um to me is just kind of incredible and there's this i mean among this you know many many things that i wrote down when i was watching it you know no space here is race neutral you know um i think it may have been in relation to the drill and the cheerleading um segment and then um and then just how these peers relate to one another these are this is a generation of young kids you know they've come up post hip hop you know um post whatever wave feminism I and mean, they speak the language of identity um, and they speak obviously the language of pop culture in which multiple identities are are now you know deemed not only uh, um, acceptable but cool and just how the tri- how the how the high school tribes um, sort out and self sort out is as fascinating as anything and so it's sort of gripping on every level I mean I liked the fact that it's this slightly overwhelming immersive ecosystem because that is the subject of it right it's 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 really it's less about any one specific kids arc though those arcs i do think are, are really gripping kid on the wrestling team i mean the, the 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 young black kid who looks at the camera and says i'm the young black male who hates school you know um i, I just think the whole thing is i mean i i can't imagine not watching all of it yeah. all right well we each said our piece we're running a little long so i think we're going to helicopter it here and um and move on but um America to me, it's on stars. Um, and um, I hope I hope people find it and watch it and get back to us about um, how they felt about it. 
All right, moving on. Wesley Morris is the Pulitzer Prize winning critic at large for the New York Times. He's also co-host of the Still Processing podcast. He also broke the internet almost, uh, maybe nearly. I think he broke it last week with an essay on art in a time of warring public morality. Uh, let me, it's a great friggin' essay. Let me quote from it. The real world and social media combat we've been in for the past two years over what kind of country this is, who gets to live in it and bemoan or endorse how it's being run have now shown up in our beefs over culture, not so much over the actual works themselves, but over the laws governing that culture and the discussion around it. Which artists can make what art, who can speak? We're talking less about whether a work is good art, but simply whether it's good, good for us, good for the culture, good for the world. Wesley, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Oh, we've missed you. It's been too long. I miss you guys, too. We get to listen to Still Processing, which is so, so good, and I've endorsed it, but... You guys, listeners to this show, go subscribe to it right now. It's so, so good. But it's nice to be able to talk to you direct. Thank you. Wesley, here's the, I thought the, I think it's an amazing essay throughout, but you stick the landing in a way that was just standing O. I mean, it was just, it, it really is an incredible tour de force throughout, but that ending is remarkable. We'll get there. But first, um, sort of a devil's advocate question. Is it sure. really so different in this day and age? I mean, most uh, super self-conscious consumers of culture come out of liberal arts programs, not all of them, but some of them come out, where the question of whether art is good as art has been set aside for whether art is good for society or for disesteemed members of society. I mean, is it what what is different, I guess, is what I'm asking now than before? I mean, what seems different to me is the degree to which people are scared to speak. I mean, that that's a huge part of this, at least in, in, in terms of my experience. When, when, when I was a kid, and this would have been in the 1980s and early 90s, I, don't, I never got it. I mean, it's a little bit different because I wasn't an adult. But there was so much discussion about the, 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 the problem of art and culture in the world. But it was, nobody seemed to be afraid to like have these fights about the goodness and badness of the art and culture. And there wasn't, um, there didn't seem at least to me to be like a silencing mechanism for what you could and couldn't say. Like, you know, you would have... Al Sharpton and you know I mean it wasn't always a white nationalist it usually was just some like regular conservative white person I mean there was a lot of of fighting and discourse and talking on in the culture about whatever was going on um and I think now to me I feel like people are afraid and I think I should be more specific about who the people are I think there's a degree to which there's a class of white people who are afraid to talk about art and culture in a in a real meaningful way and for a number of totally legitimate historical and and, and culturally historical reasons non-white people non-straight people want to make sure that the way these conversations take place are done in a way that is inclusive, which is fair, and using the right way of think, you know, the quote unquote right way of thinking about our art and culture. And I just see that like it's almost a complete 
dovetailing or dovetailing isn't right. It's like one thing almost perfectly fits at one era perfectly fits atop the other in terms of of it's like a mirror image though, right? Like it's it's now the the formerly oppressed or the oppressed actually now have a a means by which to do a similar kind of moralizing about what is good and bad for 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 the country and the world and i just sort of wanted to lay out the problem and for me see whether it changed what was sort of bewildering and and you know fascinatingly ironic about it to me wesley this piece was so interesting to read how did you feel about the response it met with online can i be honest with you about something yes i actually don't know i i I was in the middle of when this when the, when the piece went up. Uh, I was in the middle of working on like two other things, and I just I cannot. I don't want my blood pressure to go up. I wasn't ready for it to go up in 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 light of what else I had to do. I think there were a few points of critique uh, articulated with kind of different levels of precision. The Vulture Roundtable was really interesting, included a bunch of critics of color, I think mostly critics of a younger generation, uh, all of whom both acknowledge that they've experienced the thing that you describe of kind of bracing yourself for the anticipated potential response to uh, articulating an opinion about a work by or about people of color or other underrepresented groups, um, and yet also found your piece, I think, unpersuasive in articulating what the silencing mechanism was and interrogating it totally precisely. Like, who's actually being silenced? You got into a fight with your friend at a dinner party. You know, there was some kind of picking of uh, nits there, I think. Mm. Then Ingu's piece for us articulated... um, that I think it's worth looking at what is gained in the criticism in addition to what is lost by this environment. So maybe people are a little bit more careful or cautious about what they say and are taking the backgrounds of creators into account in a different way. Um, but also there are more kinds of voices in the criticism that bring other experiences to bear and the kind of upsides of that critical conversation probably outweigh some of the restrictions on it. Is that fair? Did I, did I miss any of the threads? Yeah, I would say. I mean, I think there's there's a conflation of your argument from 30 years ago, a classic sort of anti-political correctness argument from the 90s, which I think you probably would want to differentiate yourself from. Yes. No? Yeah, I mean, yes, yes, yes. I am not Jesse Helms. <laughs> <laughs> or Tipper Gore. Or Tipper Gore. I'm glad we finally clarified that today. <laughs> but I don't know. I feel like, and I don't know, I mean... I feel like this is also this is exactly the place to ask these questions like with the three of you, because I I mean, I do I do feel like the history of the way an aspect of popular culture and art has been written about, considered, has not been considered at all, um, has we've reached a reckoning point for all of those things. And I think I don't know what the other side of that looks like. But I also thought it was it was useful for me to try to identify the problem and the story about the dinner party. I mean, and 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 the you know the arguable lack of 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 a specified um, class of silenced people and silencers. Um, 
I felt it was ambiently enough in the cultural discourse for like a couple examples to to be resonant. Right. And Um, just to clarify for people who haven't read it. So you talked about how you don't think Insecure is a perfect work of art. Right. And you have some critiques of it. Yes. And your friend got mad at you for levying those critiques. Yes. People will stop me on the street and say they, you know, they like still processing. They like my work. Um, And sometimes they'll sometimes they'll want to talk about some aspect of something that I've written or that Jenna Wortham and I have talked about on the show. And I had some person tell me uh, I don't remember what we were talking about. I think it was we were talking about it was uh, either Black Klansman or Sorry to Bother You. Uh, I didn't explain on the show really I we didn't really get into exactly all of the things that I liked and didn't like about Sorry to Bother You but I did mention to this person that there were things in that movie that that just didn't work for me and he received my saying this as as kind of an attack on the movie and I I had to clarify like no 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 I don't I'm not saying that like the movie shouldn't exist I'm just saying that there are things in it that don't work and he just seemed really upset with me. And I was like, oh, there goes another listener. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, well, I mean, but this this is a good forum to talk about it because we are old criticism, right? Like we are yeah, three white people with varying degrees of fancy pants education who have been the like official receivers of culture. People like us have been the official receivers of culture for a long time, right? Like, right. and... The fact that the conversation that Slate has convened about these questions is 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 three white people soon to all be in their 40s or above, you know, feels less illuminating and less relevant over time, I think. And that says, I think, good things about our broader awareness as a culture of what a productive and useful conversation can be, um, but also leaves us in a pickle sometimes of like, okay, well, but we are three critics. We do respond to the culture in the world. We try to, to bring our perspective to it. And there are moments where we feel like, well, who cares what we have to say about this particular work of art? Um, and there are also moments where we where we feel like, well, who cares what we have to say about this particular work of art? Who are we to have an opinion about X or Y or Z? And then flip side moments where we're like, yeah, but the critical conversation between the three of us is the thing that this show is. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I remember a moment listening to Still Processing where you guys talked about, um, what's the John Krasinski movie? Oh, The Quiet, a quiet yeah. Place. When you guys talked about A Quiet Place and read it as a, as a document about kind of whiteness under threat. <laughs> and I remember yeah. listening to the episode and being like, mm-hmm. whoa, what an interesting reading. I don't think this is really about whiteness at all. I don't think that's what whiteness feels like. And then I was like, oh, my God, I'm having the experience of being excluded from the culture, the critical conversation. This is so great. I was yeah. like, oh, I don't think these guys really know what whiteness is like. And then I was like, oh, wait, that's like the whole thing. That's so great. I love that I'm hearing this conversation that right. isn't the conversation I would usually hear. Um, but, but you know, t- to me, one of the things that's interesting about all of this is Silencing, I think, maybe is a, a word that's worth interrogating, and it's not, I'm not sure it's actually the word you use very often. N- no, the phrase that is that strikes me as potentially worth thinking through is chilling effect. Right, a chilling effect mm-hmm. is a legal mm-hmm. term, mm-hmm. but I do think there's this uh, set of people of all kinds in the critical conversation who are 
thinking twice before they speak. Mm-hmm. And I think that thinking twice, that chilling effect has upsides and downsides. In general, critics are engaged with expression about expression, right? We are we are a tribe that believes in expression, right? We believe in having viewpoints and sharing them, whether it's the artists or the critics. Um, and so an environment where there is a restriction, even self-imposed on expression, mm-hmm. feels weird. And one of the things I love about your piece is that you kind of call it out and lay it out and interrogate it. And I think that's been kind of a creeping behind closed doors conversation and not so much a public conversation. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, a lot of the thinking twice, I mean, there's a lot of things that people haven't thought enough about in mm-hmm. the history of right. art and culture. So some right. of that thinking twice, I think, is probably more beneficial than not. I, I love the piece because you are you are allowing yourself not just to be nuanced, but I think somewhat agonized. Like you're 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 agonizing out loud in the piece, which I found m- moving about it because um, because there isn't an answer, and this choice isn't between a reactionary idiot who writes for the New Criterion who complains as a white male that he's suddenly being persecuted, nor is a kind of you know. Um, you know, ability to chill others, um, you know, in itself an admirable quality just because of the identity of the person who wields it. Um, The question that I come back to over and over again, having read the piece is who has the authority to render a judgment and who has the power to silence uh, others? Um, And um, what counts as an objective um, judgment? What counts as a human universal? All of these were put in play in the culture studies departments of the 1990s and are now bubbling up in the culture precisely because we're, we're uh, it, it, precisely those people who've been empowered to speak in this way are about to be endangered in a, or are now being endangered in a completely new way politically mm-hmm. uh, by a massively regressive politics. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense that people of conscience who are white and straight and cis um, are going to account for that in their personal lives and in their aesthetic judgments so that one can't be, I mean, I speak now only for myself as a middle-aged white sort of straight guy. Like I, I can't, I can't pretend that I represent some human neutral, you know, or that my judgments are somehow authoritative based on my identity. Mm-hmm. And the overcompensation in the direction of nullifying my authority such as it is strikes me as in net-net uh, a healthy thing, mm. right? If, if the world is making us line up in ways that for now are both sadly predictable, but also touch upon our deepest self, because politics for the foreseeable future is going to touch upon our deepest selves. And the idea that there's some part of us, which is a political point of view, that can be separated from that part of us that's an aesthetic creator or appreciator is being massively falsified right now. That's that's kind of where I come out on this for what it's worth. Well, can I just say that what you just said is a huge aspect of what Okay, so a year ago when the Harvey Weinstein stuff was breaking and and the culture was like changing beneath our feet and you knew you knew that when like a week two weeks later there had been like six more men accused of 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 terrible things the thing as a reader I, that I wanted to read was sort of morally impossible 
to publish, right? Which would have been the thing that we get a year later with people like John Hockenberry and John Gameshi, which is, that's not what I wanted to read, to be honest. But like, I would have, the thing that I want to hear and read is a straight cis white male or any any man, any straight cis man, but particularly a white one, talk about what a moment like this is like. And not as a person who is necessarily innocent of anything, but somebody who has also probably done some questionable things. I think that every guy that I talk to about, like, would you would you write that? Nobody wants to read that for me. But I will tell you in my conversations with women... Every woman I have spoken to is like, I would read a good version of that. And I think mm-hmm. that the reason we all read that Gameshi piece, well, I mean, eventually we were reading it, we were hate reading it, but and, and the Hockenberry too, but I think the initial alarm and interest in, in reading them in the first place was because in a weird way, part of this reckoning is going to involve way more people of color speaking, way more queer people speaking, mm-hmm. way more women talking about their experiences, but also white people writing as white people, mm-hmm. which is yep. which is a version of what I mean. I think that what I'm actually asking for in this piece is kind of reasonable. It doesn't seem at all radical to me or reactionary, and it might even be conservative, but it's only conservative in in the in the in the atmosphere of this moment to me. Right, right. Um, I I don't want to hear less from white people. I want to hear more from everybody, including white people who have an understanding of themselves as white in the way that I, as a black person, have always understood myself to be black, mostly because politically I've been forced to understand myself to be black. Exactly. And now politically white people are forced to write and speak as white people right, and not right, as right. people. And that's a, a sea change profoundly to be grateful for. Leslie, unfortunately, I think we got to wrap it here. I mean, you know, the rules for, rules for rhetorical engagement are so up for grabs right now and they're just being decided on a case-by-case basis but this piece the morality wars uh in the times magazine um you know at least tries to admit that that has brings with it agony and and, and the very special agony of ambivalence um so anyway it's a great piece of writing and it was a, as always a complete pleasure to have you on thanks you guys thanks wesley All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you have? I want to endorse something that when I saw it a couple weeks ago and tweeted it out, I thought this is going to be the greatest endorsement of all time. I can't wait to endorse it. It's the perfect Slate Culture Gabfest endorsement object. And then I lost the link and couldn't find it anymore (laughs) and was trying to go back through, you know, hundreds and hundreds of tweets to find it. And I didn't sort of know how to Google the right terms. Anyway, finally this week I have found it again and I'm so excited to endorse this. Uh, It's a gallery of movie posters. Have you guys seen this? A gallery of fake movie posters um, in which... The artist, who I think is a guy named Peter Stoltz, it's a little bit hard to tell from the page if he designed all of these or if he more sort of managed the design of these posters. But uh, it's a whole bunch of movie posters from different eras in which he he cast 
uh, stars outside of their eras. So, for example, the reason it got sent to me is that he has Buster Keaton as Mad Max, and there's this gorgeous <laughs> poster that's sort of a uh, that looks like a 20 style movie poster, but it's for Mad Max and The Fury Road rather than Fury Road for some reason. And he puts other silent stars in it too. So he imagines Buster Keaton as Mad Max, but uh, Charlize Theron's character, what was she called, Furiosa, is Maria Falconetti, who played Joan of Arc in the the Carl Theodore Dreyer version. Lon Chaney in the Nicholas Holt role and Rudolf Kleinroga, who's a German expressionist star, as the villain in the movie. Oh so, my God, it, someone made this like for your brain. It's incredible. <laughs> I mean, but, but th- this isn't even the best one. I mean, people send it to me because at the Keaton angle, but look at some of the recasting. What this is, what's so beautiful about this is that, and Julia's looking at it with me now, it's not only an absolute triumph of poster design with an awareness of all, you know, the different styles of, of representation from these eras, but it's a triumph of recasting and sort of reimagining movie history. Audrey Hepburn as Black Swan, that's completely. <laughs> gorgeous but then if you go down to the small print in the poster directed by Michael Powell right he's like casting it Agnes Moorhead is in this version of Black Swan mm-hmm. I mean it takes you have to t- you can Rita take a Moreno, long time we with to this. assume Rita Moreno is the the Mila Kunis role oh yeah or maybe she's the one of the dance or, or maybe Winona Ryder I don't know um Jane Fonda, Roy Scheider, and Lou Gossett in Arrival. I mean, they're just, they're strange mixes of eras. Sometimes there's a big gap, right? Like imagining silent film stars into to Mad Max. And sometimes it's just sort of a generation off. But these posters stand up to a lot of, of examination. Like you can look at them for the design purposes. You can look at them for the casting thing. You can get into like the fonts that are used and the way the whole thing is laid out. They're just, they're like a masterclass in uh, in poster design and and sort of also a, a really fun retelling of film history. And uh, the day that they went up, people were really dazzled by them and, and passing them around. So I'm hoping to give them a second life with people who hadn't seen them yet. So we'll put a link on the show page. The title of the, the page is What If Movies Reimagined for Another Time and Place? And and, uh, and it's it's pretty dazzling. Mm, that sounds amazing. All right, Julia, what do you have? I finally get to endorse The Witch Elm by Tana French. So Tana French I've discussed before. So has Laura Miller. She is a wonderful writer of detective novels set in Dublin. Um, and I would recommend her entire series of Dublin Murder Squad books. There are six of those. They each feature different detectives. Um, and they're all excellent. She has a book that's just out now called The Witch Elm, in which the protagonist is not a detective. The protagonist is the accused. And it's going to sound crazy to say that an Irish murder mystery is one of the single best... uh, An Irish murder mystery by a woman is one of the single best interrogations of white male privilege that I've seen in the culture in the last few years. But the thing that Wesley was asking for and arguing about in our conversation, um, the idea of exploring what it feels like to be a white man who thinks he's a good person but hasn't also thought very hard about the world, um, kind of happens in this book in an amazing way. And that may make it sound clunky and overdrawn, but it's really not. It, it It's all of her incredible storytelling and page-turning artistry, which she's so good at. And, and all of her books have been imbued with really smart social portraiture about kind of class in and gender and in Ireland. Um, but this one achieves another level and is really excellent. And I also love the serendipity of it being called The Witch Elm. There's a big tree in the backyard of a house that plays a key role in this plot. But I also read and endorsed this year Howard's End, which also has a crucial witch elm. There's an iconic witch elm at Howard's End. So I liked the uh, 
uh, the synchronicity of my witch elm British Isles reading experiences. <laughs> that brings up the question, which witch elm? Which witch is which? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I recommend The Witch Elm by Tana French. I also have not yet read yet, but saw that the New York Times Book Review had Stephen King review this book this week. And I have, I'm very excited to read that. Also, Laura Miller has reviewed it for us. So um, there's plenty of reading material about the book for you to consume either once you have read it or as a prelude to deciding whether to do so. Mm. All right, then. Um, I finally get to endorse Taylor Swift. hey <laughs> <laughs> The moment has arrived, and uh, Julia and Dana, I'm sure you both know why, but she, in case our listeners don't, she has come out and endorsed the uh, Democratic candidate in the Tennessee um, Senate race, I believe it's the Senate race. Senate and, and House. Senate and House, and and essentially uh, essentially said, uh, told her 112 million Instagram followers to go out and support the uh, Democrats this fall. You know, very famously, Michael Jordan was asked about uh, why he was so apolitical. And he said, Republicans buy sneakers too. Republican Republicans buy music. Um, many, many very white people find her to be this, um, you know, kind of avatar of white goodness. Um, I'm glad that she's told them now pretty explicitly to go fuck off and that the moment has arrived not to stay neutral. I think it does take real courage to have done that. That that just deserves to be massively applauded. I, I, I'm just incredibly impressed that she did that. Um, I also very quickly want to endorse a poem called Advice to a Prophet by Richard Wilbur. Um, and um, I think you'll understand why when I read a little bit of it. When you come as soon you must to the streets of our city, mad-eyed from stating the obvious, not proclaiming our fall, but begging us in God's name, to have self-pity. So, of course, what drew me to this uh, poem is the is the climate report, which says that we're killing ourselves, that the, the humanity is committing suicide en masse. Um, and the poem's sort of about that um, and advising a prophet how a prophet might tell humanity not to do it. And I love the beginning just saying, um, not proclaiming our fall, but begging us in God's name to have self-pity. Um, um, but then what he essentially says is, and it's totally appropriate for a poet to argue this way, he said, don't just think about extinguishing the species or, or you know, snuffing out the planet, um, uh, um, you know, strangling Gaia and leaving it a fucking burnt cinder. He says, think about what these things have meant to us. It's not just that they're there. Um, it's that they it's that they created us and our imagination, like our metaphor making power comes from these things. And so he says, um, what should we be without the dolphin's ark, the dove's return, these things in which we have seen ourselves and spoken? Ask us, prophet, how we shall call our names forth when that when that live tongue is all dispelled, that glass obscured or broken. Ask us whether with the wordless rose our hearts shall fail us. Come demanding whether there, sh- there shall be lofty or long-standing when the bronze annals of the oak tree close. And I just thought that was a great way of we're trying to get our heads around it. We can't get our heads around it. We can't process it, but we have to process it. And and maybe one way of processing it is to say it's not that nature, it's not that we'll kill nature, it's not that we're, we'll murder nature, and it's not that we'll commit suicide. It's that between man and nature, there was this relationship between consciousness and the world as it is in itself that came about through metaphor. And it's that by which we order all of our experience. So what is it like to take that, that combination of things and annihilate it? Anyway, it's a great poem. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. 
Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, and you can email us at culturefest.slate.com, or we have a Twitter feed, at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our uh, production assistant is Alex Barish for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner and Wesley Morris, who was wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.